You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, this past week, Al Michaels, the legendary sportscaster, was interviewed by Chris Wallace. See it there on the screen. And during the interview, Wallace looks over at, at, at Michaels and he looks him in the eye. And he asks him to confirm whether or not a rumor that he heard about Michaels was true or not. The transcript's going to be up on the screen. Wallace says, is it true that you have never knowingly eaten a vegetable in your life? <laughs> Michaels, that is true. That is true. I was born when my parents were 18, and my mother hadn't even read Dr. Spock at that point. So she just let me have the run of the the course, and I always pushed the vegetables away. To this day, no. And I guess what I've proven, Chris, is that man does not need vegetables to survive. But is it just possible that you would like, I'm thinking of one of the more non-objectionable vegetables, a carrot? Oh, please, a carrot? No, that's an objectionable vegetable. (laughs) I mean, I was really, I mean, how would you know? You've you've never tasted it. Michaels, I look at it. I just don't even like the look of it. (laughs) And I surmise what it might taste like in terms of the texture of it. I think a lot of it probably has to do, it just doesn't look like something that would go down well. (laughs) Now, you put a big steak in front of me, and I'm going, let's go. C.S. Lewis once said, friendship Friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Al Michaels is a good man, and I'd imagine we'd be great friends. My respect for him just went up greatly in my heart. I hate vegetables. I don't eat them. I've tried maybe one or two in the course of my lifetime, but no. The texture, the taste, just no. Why ruin a burger? Why contaminate your Chick-fil-A sandwich with with pickles? Why ruin a good meal with vegetables? No, (laughs) just no. This morning, we've come to Romans chapter 14. And although I don't prefer vegetables, and some of you perhaps don't prefer vegetables, Romans 14 is not about our surface preferences, what we like or what we don't like, or what we think is better, or what we think is worse. Romans 14, instead, is all about what we do as believers when our conscience clashes with another believer on an important but not a primary issue. We might say on a non-essential issue, on a secondary issue, or a, a tertiary issue. What do we do as believers, Romans 14 is going to show us, what do we do as believers when our conscience clashes with another believer on important but not primary issues, on non-essential issues, on issues that don't relate to ultimate things, to our salvation in God, to our our trust in Jesus. Not just surface preferences, what we like, what we, we, the taste of something, what the sound of something. What do we do, Romans 14 is going to address, what do we do when our consciences clash, our convictions clash with another believer on secondary 
or tertiary issues, on non-essential issues. Now, what is a primary issue or an essential issue? Primary issue or an essential issue is basically the things that would make us Christians. The things that would make us Christians. Things we see that, that are perhaps like in the Apostles' Creed. And within the church, there's no debate about these things necessarily. God is three in one. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He gives us the Holy Spirit. We're part of his church. We live godly lives. We live for his glory. There's no debate about those things in the church. But on a secondary issue, or on a tertiary issue, on a non-essential issue, there's a lot of debate. Now, what are issues that are non-essential, or tertiary, or secondary? Well, there are issues like, should we watch MMA? What about smoking cigars? When should married couples start having kids? How many children should a couple have? Is it public school? Is it private school? Is it home school? Is alcohol okay in moderation, or is it unwise, or is it a sin? How far is too far in a dating relationship? Should we watch Game of Thrones? Should we read Harry Potter? What about video games? What about debt? Should we celebrate Halloween? Is it one service or multiple services? What about fast food? What about perpetuating the myth of Santa Claus? Christians disagree. I hope there's no kids in here. Christians disagree. <laughs> about these issues and it can create distance it can create distance it can make friendships hard it can make unity really really tough now why is that because when your conscience clashes with somebody else the first response in your heart is usually to judge it's usually to roll your eyes in your head at that somebody else they're wrong i'm right they're not spiritually with it. They can't see the full picture. They're legalistic. They're ignorant. Or worse, maybe they're not even a believer. Now, those assessments might be right. They might be wrong. But we do this because our consciences are strong. Our conscience is our deep sense of what we believe is right or what we believe is wrong. It's our deep sense of what we believe is right or what we believe is wrong. And when we're convinced that something is right and we meet somebody who shares the same faith, who says they're living for the glory of God, who wants to live for God's truth, and thinks we're wrong, our consciences can clash. And when they clash, sparks can fly. We know this to be true. Debate can happen. Cliques can form. Walls can go up. But this morning, Romans 14 is going to show us what we should do as believers when our consciences clash with another believer on important but not primary issues. I'll give you the answer up front. It's going to be in my main idea. It's a quote, there it it's a quote from St. Augustine. It captures Romans ch chapter 14 really in a nutshell. It's this. In essential things, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In primary things, unity. In secondary or tertiary things, liberty, and in all things, love. In the gospel and its immediate application and implication for our lives, unity. But in things like what should a pastor wear on Sunday, is fast food good or bad, liberty. And in all things, love. 
This is very different, as we're going to see this morning, this is very different than what the world's version of this is, the, the world's approach to this problem is. They call it tolerance, and we'll see that this morning as well. My points are going to sh- uh, be up on the screen. They're going to also flow right from this text, and they're this. Number one, the weak and the strong. We'll see that in the first two verses of Romans 14. Number two, principles or tips for unity. And number three, costly love. Costly love. Let's look at the text and our first point this morning, the weak and the strong. Verse 1 starts, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So the passage begins, and we're introduced to two parties. The one who is weak in faith, And as we'll see, the one who is strong in faith. Now, the one who is weak in faith here eats only vegetables. And the one who is strong anything. I think my mic is going in and out. Well, hopefully that... Yep, I'm going to swap to the podium. So let's let's make that work. So we see these see these these two groups. The first group is this weak in faith who eat only vegetables. And the second group is this strong in faith, who, who believe they can eat anything. Now again, it's not talking about surface preferences here. It's not saying if you're a vegetarian, you're weak, and if you're a carnivore, you're strong, although I, I suppose some of you wish it said that. What it's talking about is conscience. It's talking about conscience. The weak in faith have a conscience that has been formed by the gospel very little. And the strong in faith have a conscience that has been formed by the gospel very much. Let me just say that again. The weak in faith have a conscience that has been formed by the gospel very little. And the strong in faith have a conscience that has been formed by the gospel very much. And the gospel, of course, this morning is, is the good news of all that God has done for us through Jesus Christ. The good news of all that God will do for us through Jesus Christ. Now, both the weak and the strong believe that gospel. They both know Jesus. They they both believe salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. And both the weak and the strong, they both believe in moral norms. They they, They both believe stealing is sin. They both believe sexual immorality is sin. Murder is sin, and so on, and so on, and so on. The difference is that the weak in faith don't fully see how the gospel speaks to, how it transforms certain areas of life. They say, Jesus is Lord. He fixes my relationship with God. He forgives me of my sin. But they're not totally sure how it speaks to, how it informs things like work or like money or relationships or like competition or culture. For those things, other moralities, family tradition, Political culture are often in the driver's seat informing their conscience. Now, in context, you really have two groups back then in the church of Rome. You have, on the the one hand, you you have Gentile believers, those who were not Jewish in background. They had believed in the Messiah, and they'd become Christians. And you also had Jewish background believers, People who who were once Jewish, but then had believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and they had become Christians. Now, in the Torah, the the, the book that 
uh, Jewish background believers had grown up with, particularly in, in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Deuteronomy, there was a long list of foods that were forbidden. They were called unclean foods. Unclean foods. God had given a list to, to Israel of foods that were considered unclean. A list of foods that if you ate these foods, if you touched these foods, you were considered unclean. Now the purpose here, yes, was, was to mark off Israel as special and unique, but it was also to drive home a very important concept. And the concept was this. You can't go into the presence of God without some type of cleansing. Sooner or later, you might accidentally touch pork chops. Sooner or later, shellfish might find their way in your salad. And so you needed cleansing from all the things that were unclean before you came into the presence of God. But what the gospel is all about is that Jesus himself is the one who finally comes in and makes us clean. Once and for all, his blood covers us. He washes away all of our sin, white as snow. He presents us to the Father as holy and as righteous. As verse 14 will say, in Jesus, no food is unclean. All foods are kosher. All the food stuff, all the cleansing stuff, all of that, that dietary law stuff was giving us a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do for us in the gospel, which of course is why we don't follow those dietary laws anymore. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because there was a group back in the church in Rome, and they believed in Jesus as the Messiah, they believed in the gospel, but they just couldn't shake the centuries of tradition around the food laws. And so when they see other Christians eating meat, eating pork chops, eating bacon, they're not happy. It's upsetting to them. It creates distance. It makes friendships harder. It makes unity really, really tough. Now, why was this happening? Why was this happening? Well, they were struggling to work the implications of the gospel into their conscience. Their conscience was not totally formed by the gospel of God's grace. And so what replaced it in this particular area was a different morality, a morality based on family tradition and the old covenant. And so Paul, like, like my friend Harry, calls them weak. He says they're weak in faith. It's a bit harsh, but it's true. They're weak in the faith because of their understanding of the faith of the gospel was little. The implication of the gospel, the application of the gospel of his death and resurrection on certain things like lifestyle and culture were not sticking because other moralities, because things like family tradition were in the driver's seat informing their conscience. Now, this is a danger for us as well this morning. And I just want to comfort you this morning and say, if that's you, you probably don't know it's you. <laughs> and I wouldn't know it's, it's my, me, myself either. But the good news of the gospel is, is that when you get involved in a healthy church, that keeps the main thing the main thing. God will use others to help you to see your blind spots. He'll use others to help you to see where and how the gospel speaks and informs every area of your life. He'll use others to show you that while family traditions and current American morality might be decent, Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and that knowing him touches every area of our lives. He'll use others to show you that while other spiritualities might be interesting to tack on to our Christianity, 
In the resurrection of Jesus, he triumphed over Satan and sin and demons and hell. There's no place or space that he's not bigger than this morning. The point is, as a Christian, God is constantly calibrating our conscience. He's seeking to line up our conscience with his truth. But notice, this takes time. And in the meantime, this passage tells us how the weak in the faith and the strong in the faith can coexist, even when consciences clash. And this really leads us to point number two, principles for unity. Principles for unity. Verse 1 and 2, it says that the strong in faith should welcome the weak in faith, meaning your disposition to a brother and sister who isn't as free in Christ as you are isn't first primarily debate, but instead it's hospitality. It's love. As the old saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Verse 3 goes on. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So we see two counters. We see the tendency of the strong in faith countered here. And we see the tendency of the weak in faith countered here. The tendency, notice first, the tendency in the strong in faith is to look at the weak in faith and to despise them. To despise them. To look at someone who has all these additional rules in their life, all these additional taboos, all these restrictions in their life, and to say, oh gosh, I have to walk on eggshells around this person. Oh Lord, yuck, help me. There's no way I'm calling them. And of course, the tendency in the weak in faith is to look at the strong in faith and to judge them. They look at the freedom that someone has in Christ and they don't see freedom. They actually think what they see is unwise living. It's not, but that's what they think. They see hints of what they probably think is sin. It's not, but that's what they think. And so they say under their breath, they're not close to God. They're compromised, or perhaps even worse, they might not even know the Lord. This passage says to both groups, don't do that. If you're stronger in faith, don't despise someone who's working things out whose conscience might be easily offended. Instead, welcome them. And if you're, in weak, if, you, if you're weaker in faith, before you doom and gloom somebody in your soul, make sure you're positive that what they're doing is actually violating something that God has said, not just your rules for life. Why? Because in many cases, God has welcomed them. Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Meaning you don't even have the right to doom or gloom somebody. God alone has that right. God draws the lines, so be careful. Be careful before you throw the stones. Verse 5 continues, and notice the focus shifts a little bit. It's a little bit more reflective. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, 
eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So Paul says here, how do you find unity when your conscience is clashing with somebody else? How do you find unity in the church when there's people that are weak in their faith and strong in their faith? When there's people that disagree on so many little things? And what he says here is you should assume the bigness of God in their life. You should assume that the Lord is real in their life. You should give them the benefit of the doubt that Jesus Christ is real in their life and that they're trying the best they can to work out the implications the best they can. What that means is that wherever they land on a tertiary issue, on a secondary issue, on a a non-essential issue, if they know the Lord, give them the benefit of the doubt. What that means, of course, is that salvation and unity are not contingent on where someone lands on school choice or fast food, or whether or not they play video games, or smoke cigars, or kisses their girlfriend, or celebrates holidays, or or whatever it might be. Salvation instead is contingent on Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And from him comes a life of godliness, a life of truth, a life that is explicitly defined by him and modeled by him. Truth, life, Holiness, purity, faith, hope, and love. Some things indeed are black and white. They're explicit. But some things are gray, Paul says. And Paul says we would do well to honor the conscience of our brother and sister on those gray issues. Verse 10 really hits it home. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The point is, distance can be less. Friendships can be easier. And unity can be much easier, less tough in the church when we respect our brother and our sister's faith in the Lord wherever they've landed on a tertiary or a secondary issue, or a non-essential issue. That's not to say we can't debate. Our conscience needs to constantly be calibrated. But on issues that are not black and white, Paul says there's liberty. There's liberty. Our unity is in the Lord, not on these issues, but ultimately in him. Now, unfortunately, this isn't always how people think. Sometimes the strong in faith can land on an issue and it be totally okay in God's mind, but it can sometimes be a major problem for those who are weak in faith. Those who are weak in faith sometimes look at the freedom that someone has in Christ and they don't see freedom. They actually think what they're seeing is unwise living, perhaps even sinfulness. They actually think that what they're seeing is hints of, of ungodliness. They think it is, but it's not actually. And this is, of course, what was happening back then. Some Christians in the Church of Rome could not shake these centuries of of food laws. 
And so when they see other Christians eating meat, eating pork chops, eating bacon, whatever it was, they're not happy. It's upsetting. It's creating distance. It's, it's making friendships way harder. It's making unity in the church harder. So what do you do in instances like that? How do you find unity when consciences are really, really clashing? Well, this really leads us to our third point this morning, costly love, costly love. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put up a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul says, make it a point to not put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. The Greek, the Greek there is an obstacle or, or a trap. And the idea there is that we're all in this race. We're all in this journey of faith, this, this race of discipleship. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and narrow is the, the, the path that leads to life. And as a brother or sister is running that race, running down that, that narrow path, God's love should be motivating us to never do something that would cause that brother or sister to stumble or to fall, to get trapped as they're trying to follow the Lord. Verse 14, he goes on, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. He says, yeah. He says, yeah, I'm right on this issue. He says, yeah, Jesus is the fulfillment of the clean laws, of the dietary laws. We don't follow that anymore. But he also says when we consider conscience, they're really, really bugged by this. He says where they currently are in their, in their journey on this non-essential issue, they think it's a big deal. They think eating meat is a big deal. So for them, it is bad, Paul says. But notice he goes on, verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. He says, look, they're wrong. They're wrong on this. But if you keep eating meat when they genuinely think it's bad, this is beyond just consciences clashing. This is actually tearing them up. It's hurting their discipleship. It's hurting their faith. They're saying, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. It looks like a life that's, that's, that's going into ungodliness, into sin, into worldliness. And he says love, Paul says love, costly love, calls you to do something else. It calls you to be willing to lay down your freedoms for the good of someone else. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Meaning that's what it's all about. He says, don't use your freedom to eat meat, this tertiary issue, this, this non-essential issue. Don't use your freedom to prevent someone else from experiencing the righteousness, the peace, the joy that is theirs in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual up upbringing or upbuilding, I should say. Now, this can be really, really tough to apply. And some of you grew up in churches where you've heard this so often and perhaps it was misapplied. Because some churches would read this and they would say, well, I guess we should reduce our freedom as a congregation to whatever the lowest common denominator is in the congregation. 
So if somebody struggles with alcohol, I guess we should all never drink. Someone doesn't believe that musical instruments are godly, I guess we should just never use musical instruments. Someone says that jeans are bad, that's against their conscience, I guess, I guess no one should wear jeans. That's not what this is saying necessarily. Right? Use wisdom in your application of this. What this is actually saying is that we're called to the principle of costly love. And that principle is completely different than the world's approach to an issue like this. Because the world would say, when you have an issue where two people disagree, use the principle of tolerance. Use the principle of tolerance. And that principle would say something like, I'm not going to make any negative evaluations on your beliefs or your opinions. I'd never do that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to let anything you believe or do hinder the way in which I live. I'm going to tolerate you. So no negative evaluations and no changing the way that you live. You tolerate. But in Romans 14, we're being called to the exact opposite approach. The exact opposite approach. We're being called to costly love. And that principle starts with welcoming the weak in faith. Notice first that word weak. It's a negative evaluation. He's calling people weak. He's saying they're wrong. They're in error. He's making a negative evaluation. But then notice he also says, welcome the weak in faith. Some versions accept the weak in faith. And that word there, welcome, is critical to this entire passage. The Greek word there means to draw in, to open up your circle, to open up your arms and to, to welcome someone in, to adjust your life, to make changes in order to have relationship with someone who is different than you. What does that mean? Well, it's completely opposite of what the world says. The world says don't make negative evaluations and don't change the way you live for anybody else. But Paul says in love, make negative evaluations, though respectively, not looking down, and then adjust your life in all kinds of ways. If you have to, give up some of your freedoms temporarily for someone else's good. Why? So you can have a deeper relationship, a deeper friendship with someone who's different than you. And that doesn't mean you have to adopt their views, but what it does mean is you have to be willing to make adjustments in how you relate and how you interact with somebody else. And this, of course, is the love that is modeled by Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus makes a negative evaluation of us. When he dies, his death is saying, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. When Jesus goes to the cross, he was making a negative evaluation of us. He's saying, we're weak. And at the same time, he was welcoming us. He was sacrificing himself, inconveniencing himself to draw us in, opening his circle, opening his arms to welcome us in. He was making space in his life for us, sacrificing so we could be with him. And as we move to the Lord's Supper today, I pray we do the same. That when our consciences clash with other believers on non-essentials, on these secondary issues, on these tertiary issues, we would be willing to inconvenience ourselves for their sake. That as believers, we would see our unity ultimately in him. Not on where we are on the particular issues, but ultimately in him. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.